Welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast and Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. I'm your producer and co-host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and former Air Force officer, and we're really excited to have with us today the founder and president of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkov, who is a current emergency room physician, former Navy SEAL, and our guest today, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, who has served 38 years in the Army and has held leadership uh, roles and positions at just about every level. I believe the last assignment you had before retiring, sir, was uh, the commanding general of U.S. Army Forces in Europe, UC Europe. So welcome. That's great. It's good to be with both of you guys. Two guys I really admire quite a bit for speaking up and doing great things. Thanks, sir. So, sir, my, my first question for you right off the bat, I was reading your Wikipedia page. And, uh, That's never a I good was, place to start, Dan. I was distressed. I was distressed that you were on the water polo and swimming team at West Point, but yet did not lateral transfer to the SEAL teams. Well, you know, I don't know what I can say about that. That's quite a surprising question. But, yeah, I did uh, <laughs> swim and play water polo there. In fact, I was at West Point at, uh, about two or three weeks ago. We have, uh, just to reinforce how old I am, our class of 1975 is affiliated uh, with the class of 2025. They're our 50-year affiliation class. So we do stuff with them. And I went up and had a, uh, uh, a pizza sit down with their class just where they could, it was kind of a fireside chat where they could ask me any kind of questions. And two of the young men in the room uh, were both swimmers. Uh, and they were ecstatic about the fact that they had beaten Navy for the, first, for the first time in 30 years. Uh, wow. And, and it was interesting because my senior year, we had we did the same thing. We overcame like a nine-year losing streak to Navy and beat them in an upset. So it was pretty cool. They took me over to the, to the Crandall Pool, which is cool. And, and what's really interesting is I didn't know this, but they, they have a big picture of me as a former swimmer really? uh, in the lobby saying, hey, this is one of our guys that made good, which was kind of <laughs> – because I was a horrible swimmer, but I guess I did okay after I graduated. What was so 1975? You know, I want to get into Ukraine and, and all these kinds of things, but what was it like to be at a service academy graduating at like literally during the fall of Saigon? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting you ask that because when I went in, uh, it was 1971. And yeah. the war was the war was still going pretty, pretty hard, hard and heavy. The thing was, it was man, I'm stumbling through my words this morning. It was relatively easy to get into West Point in 1971 because no one <laughs> wanted to go in the army, right, uh, or to any of the service academies, yeah. frankly. But in 1973, there was an announcement made over the, the what we call the poop deck uh, during lunchtime that we would no longer be sending graduates to, to uh, Vietnam. Now, we had gone in thinking for sure we would go. Yeah. Uh, the, first, the first two years of our, of our classes, uh, we would have announcements of, of recent graduates who had been killed in action. In fact, there was yeah. one of the captains of the swimming team uh, who everybody knew, but we didn't, the underclassmen didn't, um, was killed in action as a second lieutenant. And those really affected the academy. The same thing went on during Iraq and Afghanistan with mm -hmm. classes. But with our class, it was, okay, we're, we're shifting, uh, shifting and deflecting our attention from the war in Asia to the, the great imperial U.S. Army in Germany for, the, for mm -hmm. the defending against the Soviets. 
so my first assignment was in Germany uh, and patrolling the wall. And it was a whole different ball game back then than it certainly is today. It was interesting, Dan, I tell you, you know, ha having spent my first assignment as a lieutenant in Germany and then going back for my last assignment commanding uh, yeah. the US Army in Europe. I mean, you talk about the changes that have taken place in that in that 40 year period. It was just incredible. Well, in, in a way, it's kind of a, a good lead in. You know, my my question for you, so a little little backstory here for the listeners is that um, when Russia invaded Ukraine most recently in in, in February of uh, of last year, um, I texted <clears throat> General Hurtling and I said, you know, just like any you know everyone else, I, I didn't know what was what was going to happen, and you know, I, I said something to the effect of, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Are, are the Ukrainians going to you know, is Ukraine going to fall? And General Hurtling said, uh, he, he said, um, I don't think so. And I think that the Ukrainians will make them look foolish in the cities. And, you know, if you think about, you know, kind of those, uh, you know, those first few weeks, those first few months, um, you know, the, the Ukrainian successes, the, uh, you know, that when the, the Russians tried to air assault into the airport outside Kiev, and and uh, you know certainly uh, try to strike down from from Belarus, and that was thwarted. What did you, what did you see? What were you aware of that you know the, the 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 common wisdom, the conventional wisdom was not. Why why did you think that? Because you were right early about yeah, that. It, it, it's interesting, Dan, because it was a combination of what I had seen in the Russian forces and the Ukrainian forces. Uh, and also just doing some battlefield math. And, yeah. and I'll, I'll address each one of those. So um, coincidentally, I had the opportunity back when I was a lieutenant colonel, I was commanding a, uh, a cavalry squadron at, at Fort Knox. And I got a call from my branch guy and said, who basically said, is your passport valid? And this was in 1994. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, yeah. He says, well, get ready because you meet the requirements. We're going to send you on a trip to Russia. We're establishing this program called Partnership for Peace. Mm -hmm. And we want they, they want a tanker and they want a Signal Corps officer to come with the official group. And so we've chosen you because the person has to be someone who participated in Desert Storm, uh, has to be a military graduate, academy graduate, having served in Europe, all this other stuff. So for about two weeks, I went to Russia in 94, and this was right after we had, had fought Desert Storm. And yeah. the dichotomy between the quality of their force, even in that period, versus ours, I mean, it was the delta was just unbelievably large. That was my first experience with Russia. Then I started having some experiences with Ukraine. Uh, in, in 2003, when we were in Iraq, uh, for OIF-1, uh, our division, I was with 1st Armored Division, I was assistant division commander at the time, we were extended because of the Sadr revolt, and we were sent down to the southern part to take over for all the European countries that had been in southern Iraq in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the less tenuous parts. And one of the units we took over for was a Ukrainian battalion. And it was just unbelievably criminal 
the actions of that unit. They were selling, uh, the Ukrainians were selling arms to modern, modern militia. They were having a black market. Uh, their soldiers were horrible. They had brought prostitutes with them uh, during deployments. They were drinking heavily. I mean, it was like, holy crap, these, these guys are really bad. Yeah. Okay, so those were my first two uh, connections with Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, what I saw going back to Europe and back and forth to uh, Iraq and also a little bit of Kosovo was one army continued to go down, the Russians, the other one continued to go up uh, in terms of improvements. In 2008, uh, I met some Ukrainians in Kosovo and they wanted to introduce me to one of their commanders and I met him, and this guy later became uh, the chief of the ground forces. It was a guy named Henedai Vorobyov. Mm -hmm. He invited me back when I became commander of U.S. forces in Europe, U.S. Army in Europe, and we spent a significant amount of time together discussing his plans for transforming the Ukrainian army. This was in 2011. At the same time, I went back to Russia for the fourth time, met their chief of ground forces, a, a guy named Strykov, and we exchanged visits. I spent a couple weeks in Russia. He spent a couple weeks with me, and at the end of those visits, he asked me a very simple question as he was getting ready to take off. He said, he says, I know you have seen our army, and, you have, uh, and we have now seen yours. How do we make our army more like yours? Uh-huh. And that, that was dumbfounding that a three-star general in the Russian army would ask me how he could improve his army and was asking an American how to do that. So I'm making this very short story long, and I apologize for that. Not at all. What I saw was a continued criminality corruption in the Russian army. And in the Ukrainian army, what I saw was a bunch of visionaries who were trying to transform it. And they hopped on board uh, the effort to contribute to ISAF as a way of helping to train their force uh, sure. and use the U.S. to help them do that. So we, con we continued to work with the Ukrainians, and I had a great relationship with General Vorobyov. Uh, we, we did a lot of, each of us did a lot of drinking for our countries together, as you, <laughs> as you understand. But um, he was struggling at the time with corruption. Mm -hmm. getting rid of the, the, the former Soviet, uh, you know, mindset within the Ukrainian force. Yeah. And he asked for help in doing that. Bottom line is we, we, we helped them establish their training center in a place called Yavoriv. I spent a significant amount of time there. Uh, in fact, later on, after I left Europe, Europe had a, or U.S. Army Europe had uh, an initiative where we literally established something called the Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine, JTMGU, in Yavoriv, uh, that trained up to the company level, uh, not above that. So you saw the leadership coming to our place in Grafenbeer to train NCOs. You saw yep. colonels going to the War College. Uh, you saw Mike Ritas, who was our Special Operations Commander in Europe, two-star general, was getting the special ops forces of Europe or in Ukraine better prepared. All of that was happening, and it. And I could go on about this for days, Dan. And I, I'm sorry for boring you with this, 
But the bottom line is, on the first day of the fight, I saw two things. There was a corrupt, crooked, poorly led, ill-trained Russian army going against an improving, transformed, good leader, well-trained Ukrainian army. And to add to the problem set, the battlefield math piece, you know, everybody on the airwaves is talking about, hey, there was 190,000 Russians surrounding Ukraine. And just by calculation, when you take a look at that half-moon circle around Ukraine where they were surrounded, that's about 2,500 kilometers. Yeah. So when you're talking about 190,000, you guys know half of that are support troops. So only about 80,000 or so are true fighters. They were poorly led. So when you compare just the numbers and the number of axes of advance they were attacking on and the number of cities they had to secure with populations over a million people, you know, it just struck me they're going to fail miserably, which they did yeah. early on. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you know, it's really interesting to my my world, you know, and my brief experience in the military, right, was soft centric and it was manhunting. It was G.Y. But we've, you know, kind of fallen back into the great power, you know, lens of history. I mean, that was almost an, uh, you know, a, a brief aberration in, in what's been our kind of national experience um, of, of competing with the Russians, which we've been doing for at least 100 years. And um, where do you see the war going? I mean, you know, I, of course, you know, it's hard to make predictions, about, you know, with so many variables. There's, well, let me back up for one second. The U.S. contribution to this war, right, the, you know, you, the aid, right, the, the aid that we're giving the Ukrainians, the weapons we're giving the Ukrainians, in your opinion, how much – I mean I think as Americans it's very easy to focus on what we're doing. Uh, you know, how much of their success is you know, directly due to, to Western support? That might be a hard question to answer. but Well, it, it's not actually. They, they yeah. would not have been successful without Western support. I mean it has been, it, it has been a tough fight uh, yeah. the entire 15 months of this. Uh, I'm not denigrating the Ukrainian soldiers. They are brave. They're courageous. They're smart. It's a great culture. It's very different. They are well-led. Uh, they know that they're protecting their own ground and their sovereignty. So all of that plays a huge part. Yeah. But when you're talking about the early stages of giving anti-tank weapon systems, precision anti-tank weapon systems, that, I think that saved their bacon early on. Uh, you know, there, there, someone did a calculation that said we gave them more javelins, tows, and, and various other kinds of uh, precision anti-tank weapons than Russia had armored vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, that was significant early. Yeah. The training they received certainly was great at the individual level. The training they're now getting at the combined arms level and with new equipment, with given precision artillery that, that we have been providing and uh, we and other NATO nations have been providing, all of that makes a difference. And it's yeah. throwing Russia off stride. They don't know how to fight this kind of conflict. And Ukraine is adapting very well. But they, they would have been overrun, I'm convinced of it, had we not provided the kind of equipment that, the, that they now have. So, you know, 
Well, I'm, I'm sure that that is true. My, my question for you is, you know, when I, when I go on, you know, of course it's all algorithm driven, right? But, you know, I go on YouTube or whatever and, you know, there's something about Bakhmut or, or what have you. It's, it's guys clearing trenches with hand grenades, you know? So what, where are we? Is this, you know, you hear some people talk about how this is a revolutionary, you know, phase of warfare with drones and now we're, you know, you know, all this, that, and the other, but, you know, at the end of the day, it looks like guys clearing trenches with hand grenades. And yeah. I'm curious, like, what your, you know, what your take on, it, are there sort of universal truths that are, are you know, uh, at work here, or are we seeing something new? Yeah, no, well, there's a little bit of both. There yeah. are universal truths. I mean, you need the courage and, and the, the training and the leadership in the fighting soldier on the ground to take ground. Uh, but at the same time, the implications of drone warfare, precision uh, strikes, uh, communications that's encrypted, intelligence speeds that uh, allow you to process information very quickly and, and counter an enemy's action before they do something. Uh, you know, I mean, you used the, the, the city of Bakhmut as an example. It is a perfect example of waves and waves of what the Russians call cannon meat or cannon fire yeah. going against a more a, a force that's more precise in terms of their firepower, their use of intelligence, uh, and their and their weapon system, and they're just getting slaughtered. Uh, but it's still trench warfare. It's still right. a human being defending or attacking something that that is affected by fear or courage, or anxiety, or thoughts about home, or all those things. But it just seems that we're seeing the advantage that a well-trained force with great support and great leadership. <laughs> you know, I, I often go back to the Clausewitzian triangle, uh, the, the golden triangle of if you've got a great army, you also need to have support from the people and a government that's leading you well. Yeah, it doesn't have either one of the three of those. Take away their tanks, their artillery, whatever you want to call it, their caliber missiles, but they don't have any one of those three aspects of the Clausewitzian triad. Ukraine has all three of them, so they're what? a lot of force taking them on. Yes, you they've got a question. Yeah, yeah sir. So we we'd asked this before. We talked about this on previous programs uh, when it comes to the duration about whether or not this this looks like a protracted conflict or or it may wrap up sooner than later. You know, both sides have a, supply, a logistics and supply chain that are beyond the reach of the enemy. The Ukrainians get supplies from Europe, and, and Russia hasn't so far tried to target those directly. Uh, the Russian supply lines are beyond the reach of Ukrainian military forces. To me, that suggests that, that things could keep going for quite some time. But I'm just curious, do you see that as the case, uh, or do you think this uh, may, may end sooner than people think one way or the other? Yeah, I, well, it's a great question, Jason, and I'm, you know— Dan was nice enough to compliment me on the early phases of the war, but I'm, but I'm at a loss in terms of what's going to happen right now. And here's why. Uh, you're right. Logistics determines the art of the possible. That's a war college maxim. You know, you can be a tanker like me, but if you're not getting the bullets and the gas, you're not going anywhere. That's what's happening. Yeah. Because Ukraine has the allies that are supporting them even though they have been devastated in terms of their industrial base and they've lost a lot of money and they can't create their, old, their own arms, they're dependent on the West to continue to support them. 
Russia is dependent on themselves, and they're quickly losing steam in that in that area. So it is going to be a race to how much can Russia sustain all of the things that are causing or creating their deficiencies versus how long is the West going to support? Mm-hmm. You know, Zelensky's been really, I'm surprised you haven't asked me about aircraft yet because everybody else asked me about F-16s. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's interesting because what Ukraine has needed is a modern army and a modern air force and to a lesser degree right now, a modern Navy. And they want it all right now. Well, yeah. you know, that's that's a hard thing to deliver on. It's not like you just go to the Kmart and order up a, you know, a tank division or a, a you know, 10. I, I heard today that the chief of the Russian, uh, or excuse me, chief of the Ukrainian Air Force thinks that he can get along with, with uh, between 14 and 20 squadrons of S-16s. Now, you being an Air Force guy knows that that's about 200 airplanes. And that's a whole bunch of money that goes into that. And it's not like F-16s are sitting on a shelf somewhere. And then you add to the fact of what goes along with F-16s, like the AWACS aircraft and the close air support capabilities and the combat air patrol. Those are hard things to deliver in the middle of a war. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nobody you has know, air supremacy in this so far. It's it's a contested sky, and that's something that we haven't had a chance to see for a while. So I I, right. under, I understand where they're coming from when they when they want those tools, but I, I'm not sure they, they like you said realize what's involved with actually employing those. It's one thing to get them and have them sitting on the tarmac. It's quite another to fly them day after day and a sustained operation on that scale. Well, that's the thing. I get I get beat up on a daily basis because I I kind of push back on the people asking for 200 F-16s. And I said, yeah, it, they can train on the airplane, and they can probably be flying them in a couple of months, but it's the support piece that folks just don't wrap their head around. And, and having commanded an armored division in combat, I know the amount, you know, two-thirds of my division were supporters. Yep. And that's, people don't understand that. It's tough. Have we, is there any analogous, you know, I, I think of, obviously, the, the, the scale of it is different, but like lend lease, right? You know, where we're sending, you know, massive amounts of, of you know, kind of ammunition and, and planes and ships and all this stuff to Britain and, and also Russia at the time. And maybe it's a maybe it's a better question for a historian, but you know, how how did that look back then? Were we also sending the tail when we were, you know, do do you know like did, did we did we send the support personnel for we didn't send the personnel we sent trucks and logistics stuff but i think when you try and compare you know the kinds of things that are required to win on this fight today versus back then i mean it took three years if you take a look at the history of land lease and it's a fascinating history it took three years to get the kind of things going and they weren't precision weapons that cost you know i mean Last night, you know, in, in Ukraine, they were talking about the success of the Patriot defending Kiev by knocking down six or seven, I can't remember how many, uh, these hyper-cruise missiles. Well, each one of those Patriot missiles they fired at them cost about two million bucks apiece. Right. That's a whole lot different than the ACAC guns of World right. War II, you know. Yeah. It's just a whole different price tag. And that's where I think the political aspect of this is going to play in as we see even some in the 
U.S. House of Representatives right now saying we shouldn't continue to support Ukraine. So that's a great segue into the other issue I wanted to chat with you about, which is uh, you know U.S. domestic politics, and you know certainly to me there's kind of you know it appears there's kind of a cohesive, coherent narrative of uh, the Trump administration and the first impeachment trial and javelin missiles and, and all these sorts of things. And it seems, you know, fairly clear to me that um, our, our present aid to Ukraine uh, is threatened uh, by a second Trump administration. So I would also posit that most people who've served in uniform um, the vast majority of us, whether it's uh, at a flag level or at an E4 level, would want to continue supporting Ukraine. And this is sort of a two-part question because, you know, again, you were very early to, uh, um, to speak out against Trump um, back in, you know, 2017, 2016. It may have even predated that. But why do... Generals and admirals, and, and there are, with many exceptions, but what is it about being in that role of being, I, you know, I was a, a two-star general, I want to stay out of it. I, I'm not going to take a stand on U.S. domestic politics. I'm not going to attach my name to a political candidate. And why is that so hard? And, and I understand I think the uh, you know the the argument that you want the military to to be apolitical, but you know, I mean the, the, there's a there's a candidate for the presidency who literally you know endorsed overturning the constitution. So, please, your thoughts on on that? Yeah, this this is uh, this is a three beer conversation, I think, <laughs> but uh, and since we don't have that right now, here's here's what I'll comment on. Um, I have, first of all, I would say I, I've been an independent, registered independent my entire life. I still sure. am. Uh, I didn't vote while I was in uniform for any presidential candidate because I agreed with the martial dictate of, you know, whoever is elected as the president could be your boss, so you shouldn't support either one. But I, I in 2016, I had never supported, actively supported, a candidate, but in 2015, during the campaign, I saw what you just described, was that there was an individual who ha did not have the character of leadership, who seemed to be contrary to our national values, who made some comments uh, during the campaign that were criminal, unethical, and immoral in nature. Uh, and I could cite you an example of that. So I never truthfully went personally against Mr. Trump. <clears throat> what I did say is this individual is dangerous for our country and is yeah. contrary to our Constitution. Mm -hmm. So over the next several years, when I commented on things that Trump was doing, it wasn't you know, anti-Trump rhetoric, although it certainly appeared that way, yeah. it was pro-Constitution rhetoric. And, I mean, a, a, a silly example, I got the hell beat out of me because I said something on CNN about how having a parade, a military parade in Washington, D.C. is not the American way of war. It's not yeah. what we do. 
Uh, that's for the French or for the Russians or the Chinese, but it's not what we do. Uh, <laughs> I, w I will go back to what you said earlier, that I was one of the earlier guys to uh, stand up against some of the things Trump was saying and set the conditions of the stories. I actually have the great honor of being the first guy, the, the first general that Trump said he was smarter than. <laughs> and, and it appeared on Anderson Cooper's show in, in, during the campaign because Cooper, there was the big talk about ISIS at the time. And Trump said something along the lines of that he would go in and kill all the terrorists, kill all their families to make sure that they knew they were coming from. He used the false analogy of Pershing dipping uh, uh, bullets in pig's blood, to, pig's blood to go after Muslims. And then the thing that really uh, kind of took it over the top was we should go into Iraq and take all of their oil. Yeah. And so on a show, Cooper asked me, he said, is that, is, you know, that's what the candidate is saying. What do you think of that? And I said, well, first of all, I was in northern Iraq and the oil fields were in really bad shape. Secondly, we tried to get uh, – companies like Shell and BP to come in and refurbish their oil facilities at Beji and in Erbil. And they came in for a couple of weeks and said, we can't do this with a fight going on. And third, to steal oil from another nation is a war crime. Yeah. Okay. That's what I said. I didn't say right. Trump is an idiot. He's wrong, although he was. Uh, so the next night, Cooper is interviewing Trump at, 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 uh, at uh, Towers in Trump Towers in New York, and he lays it off what I said. He said, well, we've got General Hurtling as our military analyst, and he says it would be a crime to steal Iraq's oil and you can't you know, just go in and take it. And he said at the time, well, then I'm a smarter general than this general you're talking to. That was the first time he used that phrase. Um, you know, so I was standing in the green room when all this happened, and you know, he shifted from the recording of the interview to me, and I didn't know all this was going on, and it was like, you know, I was smirking and <laughs> laughing. So I said, well, you know, Mr. Trump may be a great businessman, but he's, he doesn't know anything about battle or combat or the rules of war. Yeah, I, you know, there's a, there, there's a thing, there, you know, there's true expertise in the world. Right, like that's a thing that exists. There are people who are experts at things, and um, you know, I think we have this uh, sort of cultural fascination with um, you know just just getting more violent than the other guy, or you know, we'll just do it this way, and you know, it's oversimplifying these sort of complex problems. Um, and, you know, it's, it's intellectually tempting to, you know, to, to want to do that. It's, but it's, um, I, I'm always sort of flabbergasted that we can have a military that's, you know, lethal, the best in the world, that will kick the living crap out of any adversary, but also follows the law of armed conflict. Those are not mutually, you know, exclusive goals. And, 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 um, I don't, I don't understand why, you know, some people think it has to be one or the other. Um, well, it's, it's the tough guy syndrome. You know, yeah. you, I know both of you guys have talked about the proverbial tough guy, vet bros. And, I mean, you know, it, 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 
especially coming from you guys who have worked special operations, to have someone stand up against the individual that's, you know, wearing a pistol on his hip inside of Den a Denny's restaurant and right. carrying around a, a, a laws launcher and stuff like that. It's just a, and wearing camouflage gear all the time. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But for some reason, I think it smacks of insecurity in some of these individuals that they somehow want to be associated with an organization like the military that's known to be very good. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, there were some, some article I was reading, and so this is not my, you know, my phrasing, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they were interviewing some, uh, uh, a gun manufacturer of some sort, and, he, you know, what he said was, well, I, I can't call my customers wannabes, so I call them military enthusiasts. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of where where things are right now. And, um, and, and at the same time, though, you know, we have this politi politicization of the military, and I think it's one of the factors that's hurt our recruiting uh, you know, I think back to uh, when I when I first came on active duty in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, the approval rating for the military was in the high 90s. I mean, it was the most popular institution in America. Nobody else even came close. Today, it's it's around 50 percent, which astonished me when I saw that number. Um, I, I just couldn't believe it had changed that much. And I think that's one of the things that contributes to the recruiting woes that we found or uh, that we're having right now. You know, I, I've I've said this on other shows. My son is is shipping out to Marine Basic here in a few weeks. Uh, and so are some of his friends, but they seem to be going against the trend. Uh, and so it's, it's hurting the military, I think, in terms of recruiting when people see it as a political tool, even though it's not. If that perception exists out there, it, it's created a problem for us. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at some of the messaging that's been on the airwaves over the last couple of years because of the polarization. I mean, you got Tucker Carlson making fun of Air Force, you know, female Air Force officers because they're pregnant. You've got the whole woke mentality. You've got a guy like Ted Cruz, comparing, luckily before the Russian invasion of, of, uh, of Ukraine, saying that we should be as tough as this Russian film clip when he, when he has no idea how bad the Russian military is, but just because they put a film clip on with a bunch of guys without shirts on and you know, doing stupid things, <laughs> it's, just, it's just incredibly, it's fascinating to me like it is to you guys that those who know very little about what the military does will be either insulting or say they should do things a different way. I mean, there's yeah. a senator in Missouri right now who's, <laughs> who's suggesting uh, that there are things that affect manliness that it, you just kind of have to laugh at it. It's so bizarre. It's ridiculous. And the whole wokeism thing, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a really... Um I'm struck by some of the, you know, the, uh, the universe. I, uh, I just ordered this book, and I know our listeners can't see it, but it's uh, State of Deception. It's from the Holocaust Museum, The Power of Nazi Propaganda, and, and I intend to read it. And, um, you know, it's the, the, the authoritarian playbook is not novel, right? Like, it's, you know, fascism is not... You know, the stuff that Benito Mussolini was doing in, you know, 1932, um, it's the same playbook, right? It's, yeah. you know, you find an outgroup, you, uh, you know, you sort of laud everything martial and, and, you know, talk about masculinity and this lost past where, I mean, it's, it's, it's textbook. Um, and so, you know, the way we defeat it as a nation, um, 
I think is is it's hard to get a democracy to sort of wake up and defend itself. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of what's needed. There, there's another book, by the way, uh, called The Authoritarian Playbook, which is very good. And I'm I'm drawing a blank on who wrote it. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Well, uh, it, it I, I would a, have to read that. Yeah. It, it is a very good book. I would highly recommend that. Um. Well, sir, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, you're, I thank you for, for everything you've done uh, and the continued uh, uh, expertise that you bring to, to cable news. Where can, where can our listeners find you these days? Well, I'm still, uh, for the time being, hanging around with CNN. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I, I was truthfully a little bit disappointed in, in some things that occurred last week with them, and, and some of us have been talking about that because it, it again, fits into the whole piece of do we honor our nation's values, the, the, the First Amendment, which is yep. just as important as the Second, which somebody you know, mentioned the other day. And uh, But I'm still on Twitter for the time being. I'm on um, the whale site. Spotify, or I can't remember the name of it, uh, but still trying to, you know, what I've been doing a lot this year, Dan, is is talking to a lot of young people, uh, university audiences, about the war, uh, yep. because they're, they need to understand it, because they vote, and yep. what we all need to do is continue to press democracy, an understanding of the Constitution, and how we are in a tenuous time. Uh, but it's not the first time this has happened in our country either. I mean, we've seen these days before, these tough days, and we'll get through them. I am optimistic about us recovering, um, but it's going to take a whole lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of young people to do that. I agree. You know, I I, uh, I often use this analogy. I think I've said it on this on this pod even before. But you know, when when Trump was in office, you know, to politically, right? Like, it, it, my analogy is is you know, World War Two and the, the, the ETO uh, and, you know, getting Trump out of office was getting off the beach on Omaha Beach. And we still got a long way to go to get to Berlin. But, you know, we're off the beach. Yeah, we got to um, get that Remagen Bridge and we got to go through the Hurston and all exactly. that other stuff, right? We've got to, you know, so I don't know. There's probably a fillet's gap in there somewhere. But, you know, we'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll make it happen. But, sir, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. It's a pleasure to be with both of you guys, and, and thanks for what you're doing, both of you, in your second careers. It, it makes a difference to continue to be a true patriot versus the ones that just call themselves that. Okay? Thanks, sir. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America, brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org. Thank you.